You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Imagine with me for a moment that you are a Christian living in the first century in the city of Rome during the reign of the Emperor Nero. Imagine that you're gathered together with other believers, other Christians, but not in a church. Because if you gathered in a place like this in that time, the authorities would have come and they would have arrested you and probably subjected you to the death penalty and any one of a number of gruesome, torturous deaths. You see, when the Emperor Nero came to power, he started off as a pretty normal guy. But as time went on, his behavior changed. It became more immoral as a person. His behavior became more erratic, and he tried different things and began to experiment with uh, different forms of, of immorality. In AD 59, he began to really change. The, the people around him noted a difference in his behavior and his mannerisms. And then in the year 64, there came a great fire to the city of Rome. So huge was this fire that it ended up destroying almost 80% of the city of Rome. It caused more damage to Rome than Hurricane Katrina did to New Orleans. The people of Rome, just like everyone does in a situation like that, they looked for somebody to blame. Isn't that what happens after a a natural disaster or after a a tragic event? People begin to look for who to blame. And many were suspicious that Nero himself had set this fire. And in order to deflect suspicion off of himself, Nero blamed the Christians. And it didn't take long for this false accusation to stick. You see, Christians were already seen as being anti-social, anti-religious fanatics. Those that refused to participate in the Caesar worship that Roman citizens were required to participate in. And as a result, Nero began to round up Christians with his army all throughout the Roman city of Rome. (laughs) Some of them were clothed in the skins of wild animals and then sent out into the Colosseum where wild dogs were let loose on them. The dogs, thinking that the Christians were, because of the way they smelled, they they, they tore them up and, and, and killed the Christians Others were fed to lions as a form of entertainment, again, in the Colosseum. And still more horribly, Nero had many of the Christians dipped in pitch and tied to stakes where he burned them alive like candles as a way to light up his gardens, his private gardens. As far as we can tell, it is highly probable that at this time, in AD 65, the Gospel of Mark began to be circulated. It was written and was shared with the different uh, communities of faith. So imagine that you're gathering together this morning, celebrating the Lord's Day, not in a church, but in the catacombs of the city of under Rome, under the streets of Rome, under heavy persecution of that wicked emperor Nero. And there, in that gathering, a man stands to his feet and begins to read from a parchment these words in verse 1, the good news according to John Mark. So as you can see, it was warmly welcomed. As you can see, the gospel of Mark uh, being probably the oldest gospel that we have, the earliest written gospel, 
was welcomed by a suffering and persecuted group of Christians who needed to be reminded of their salvation in Jesus Christ. They needed to be reminded that the Son of God had come and that He was more powerful than death. He was more powerful than demons. He was more powerful than the wild beasts that were seeking to tear their bodies apart. Before we begin this gospel, I feel it's necessary to give you some information concerning the author of this gospel. John Mark was, according to the writings of several early church bishops, the personal secretary of the Apostle Peter. It's believed that this gospel is actually Peter's account as he related it to John Mark there. And it was written down by him in Rome while he served as his secretary there. We know that Peter was awaiting trial and, and execution there in the city of Rome. And that's when Mark was probably by his side taking these things down. We also know from the, books, the book of Acts and the book of Colossians, that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. He was the one who went with Paul and Barnabas on his first missionary journey as a very young man. He turned back for some reason in Pamphylia, we're told, and and that was actually the point of contention between Paul and Barnabas when Paul was about to leave on his second missionary journey. Remember that in Acts chapter 5, they had a a little bit of a fight there uh, about whether or not they should bring uh, I'm sorry, not Acts chapter 5, uh, it's further on, I think 16 maybe. But, but in, that, in that point of contention, Paul said, no, we're not bringing that guy. He, he bailed on us. He, he chickened out, so to speak, and I can't trust him. So Barnabas said, no, well, I'm taking him. And they went to Cyprus and Paul went on his journey. Later on, we know from Scripture that Paul and Mark were, were reconciled. Because they were actually working together in Rome as well, according to Paul's letter to Philemon later on. We also know that in 2 Timothy, Paul asked that Mark be sent to him and that he would bring him his books. So they were reconciled. That's good to know. Mark's mother lived in Jerusalem. She owned a a house, a nice house there in Jerusalem. And it was at that house, at Mark's uh, mother's house, that many believers gathered to pray when Peter, the apostle, was imprisoned by Herod. And it was there in that house where Peter, when he was released from prison, he showed up. Remember the story? Knocks on the door, the servant girl comes down. Hey, don't bother us, we're having a prayer meeting right now, you know? And Peter's like, hello, it's me, you know? (laughs) You're praying for me and I'm here. It It was a funny story there in the book of Acts. But Mark, that was Mark's house where he probably had grown up. We also know that Mark after uh, Peter's death, was involved in founding the church in Alexandria, Egypt. Church tradition says that he was the founding pastor and the first bishop of the church of Egypt, as they called them in those days. So he was an active missionary, this John Mark. And as we'll see, he believed himself in the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, One more little side note about John Mark. Um, We actually think that he wrote about himself in this book, Uh, When it comes to the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, uh, it talks about a young man who was following Jesus there in the garden that night. And it says that they went to grab him, but he dropped the sheets that were wrapped around him and fled basically in his underwear to get away that night. And, And many of the commentators believe that that was John Mark himself as a very young man 
who would have been present there in, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, at least watching there on that night that he was betrayed. So very interesting life that John Mark led and, and, and very tied into the life of Jesus Christ and the life of the apostles. Very close relationship especially with Peter. In fact, Peter calls Mark his own son in one of his letters. Now, Mark's gospel account is written in a different style than the other gospels. And you'll notice that if you've ever read through them, you'll realize, man, his account of the gospel, it's marked with a sense of action. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of immediacy in the gospel of Mark. In fact, it's the shortest of all the gospels. has less words than the other, uh, four, uh, other three gospels. And in fact, in this gospel, we will see the word immediately over 40 different times, okay? 40 different times that word immediately will be seen in this, in this uh, uh, gospel account. Mark is going to follow the action-packed life of Jesus Christ, and he does this with a certain audience in mind. That audience is the Romans. Now, the Romans, as a culture, they respected action, they respected deeds, and that is why we believe that Mark wrote in this form. He, he presents Christ as a workman of God, or a servant of God, one who was continually acting and serving in his life. And as this gospel uh, is, is written to the Romans, that would make sense. So this action-packed account of the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, it begins with the arrival of the Son of God in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this is really the theme verse for the book of Mark, for the entire gospel. It's written to tell us about the good news, specifically the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that word good news was used in the Roman culture whenever there was joyful tidings to be given. So the the idea behind this good news is that there's something joyful about this news. Mark begins this gospel by telling us about a new beginning. A new beginning that is marked by the coming of the Christ, of the Messiah. Now, there are two beginnings recorded for us in Scripture, at least two beginnings, uh, that God marks as very significant in the history of humankind. Obviously, the first one is in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Now, we all know the story about that beginning. We all know that that beginning didn't turn out so well. It began with Adam and Eve in paradise, in a place where virtually they had everything that they could dream of. It was all there. God had placed it there for them. All they had to do was lord or or govern it. Uh, They were responsible for it. They were to steward it. They were to just live in the presence of God every day and to manage the earth that he had placed at their fingertips. And this was back before you had, you know, the stinking Zika virus, back before you had malaria, back before you had thorns and thistles and weeds and all those kinds of wonderful things in creation that we all love to work with. It was ideal conditions. And God planted man in that condition and said, okay, I've made all of this for you, now enjoy. There's only one thing you can't do and that's eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it was perfect conditions, and yet we saw uh, in that first beginning that mankind could not handle that kind of a setting for very long. 
For we see that they were tempted by Satan and fell into sin, and that sin, because of one man, passed to all humanity. After the corruption of the human race, so to speak, with that sinful nature, it was passed through Adam and Eve onto their sons and daughters and on down the line until, yes, you guessed it, you and I. We're also part of that problem, the sin problem. (laughs) We all carry it with us. It's all in our hearts. It's a part of us as well. But that was the first Adam, the story of the first beginning. The second Adam As the Apostle Paul explains in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, he says the second Adam, like the first, doesn't have an earthly father. But rather Jesus Christ was, uh, uh, you know, we, we call it the immaculate conception. He came into existence because the Holy Spirit came over and overshadowed Mary, the mother of Jesus. She conceived in her womb by the Spirit and Jesus Christ came to the earth. It's the second beginning, but really it's the only one that should matter for us who recognize and realize who we are as sinners. We are in need of a Savior, and this is the new beginning that God has ordained from all time to come and to be for you and for me the salvation that we so desperately needed. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he comes into a fallen world where he resisted temptation. He experienced life as you and I do. The, the, the temptations that you and I, that are common to you and I, they were placed before Him as well. And Jesus Christ, we're told, lived in this fallen world, but He resisted temptation and He lived a sinless life. This righteousness of Jesus Christ is what we talk about when we talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. It's what we all need in our lives if we're going to have a new beginning. You see, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to give us new hope, new life, a new beginning. Now, as soon as he introduces the theme of his writing, Mark immediately turns to the inspired word of God, and he begins to show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that was prophesied to come through the Old Testament scriptures. He says, as it is written in verse 2, in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is a reference to uh, Old Testament prophets, uh, namely Malachi and Isaiah, who pointed to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And before the Messiah could come, there was a prophet that was going to come on the scene and announce his arrival, and that prophet was Elijah. Okay, the, the Jewish nation was expecting Elijah to return. They believed that because Elijah was taken up into heaven alive, that before the Messiah came, Elijah was going to actually come again. You know the story. Elijah there, when he crossed over the Jordan River with Elisha next to him, and, and, and then there that chariot of fire descends from heaven. And it picks him up, and it takes him away while he's still alive. So the, to the Jew, they were expecting a prophet Elijah to come back and to begin to prepare the people for the coming, the second coming of, I'm sorry, the the, the first coming of the Messiah. So John, but John the Baptist, we know from scripture, he said that he was not Elijah. 
And then you had Jesus telling everyone that he had come in the spirit of Elijah. So, so there was some confusion in the Jewish nation about John the Baptist. But that's who this is referring to. <clears throat> and we can reconcile that by understanding that John the Baptist was actually the Old Testament fulfillment of these prophecies. Because he came in the same spirit as the great prophet Elijah came. Jesus says, yes, this is the one that you're expecting. This is the one who was to come and to announce my presence. He, he has the spirit of Elijah. We come now to verse 4 where we see the announcement of John the Baptist. He says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So here we see that John the Baptist preached that the people needed to repent of sin in order and be baptized. Okay, that that baptism was a sign of their heart condition. Okay, and that's what this is talking about here. Baptism was preparing their hearts for the new work of Jesus Christ in their lives. Uh, much like we do today in Christian baptism, what we uh, ask is, is that the, the people realize, the, those that are candidates for baptism, we ask them to realize, listen, you're taking a step of obedience here. You're taking a step of faith that shows what, you've, what has happened in your heart, that you have actually become a child of God, that you're stepping into the kingdom of light, you're following after Christ, He is your Lord and your Savior. In much the same way, John was calling the people of, uh, of Jerusalem and the, the Jewish nation, really, to come out and to say, look, I am renouncing a life of sin and I want to live a righteous life. And it was a preparation, a work of preparation. Now it's interesting, baptism was not something that the Jews, the Jews practiced normally. Okay? The, the, this practice of baptism, it wasn't something that they did. It was rather, it was a, a, a sign that the Gentiles went through in order to become Jewish. So when a Gentile uh, person decided, you know what, I'm going to adopt Judaism, I'm going to become a Jew, they would have to go through this ritual of baptism. Saying, look, I renounce all ties to any other gods, any other religions, and, and, and I'm turning my life over now to the God of Israel. And that was what they were doing. They would go through this ritual. So the fact that the Jews were being called upon by John the Baptist to be baptized, this was unique. Nobody else was doing this, and that's why they called him the Baptist, John the Baptist. But he was calling them essentially to say, you know what, I recognize that I am so far away from God that I need to be baptized, that I am like a Gentile, and I thus need to go through baptism in order to come back to a place where my heart is right and where I can walk with God. So that's what John was preaching to them, and that was what he was preparing them for was the coming of Jesus Christ. Their hearts would be prepared now for the rece receiving of the true gospel in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, we continue. It says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and to loose. Let's pause right there for a second. Now, catch this with me. As impressive as John the Baptist was, there with his camel skin, locust legs sticking out of his beard, you know, dreadlocks, 
He's got natural honey dreadlocks probably. I mean, the guy must have looked really impressive. Have you ever seen natural dreadlocks? They are impressive. And they smell funny too. I tried to have dreadlocks one time. Natural ones, but I couldn't stand it. I, I had to, yeah. Anyways, he was, this guy was an impressive dude. Standing out in the wilderness, preaching next to the Jordan River, and basically saying, look, the axe is laid at the roots. It's time to figure out whose side you're on. And, and if you're for God, then you're going to come down here to the water and you're going to get baptized. And so he was calling people to do uh, something that no one else was doing, to act out on their faith, to come forward and to, and to make a, a commitment to living righteously, to turn away from sin. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is changing your mind about your sin. It's changing your mind about the way you think about what you're doing. You're coming to align yourself with what God says about your sin. And you're saying, you know what? I agree with God. I confess that this is wrong. I turn away from this action and I turn to God. That's what repentance is. That's what John was calling these people to do. But as powerful as his message was, as impressive as he was as a prophet, it was nothing compared to the Son of God. It was nothing compared to Jesus Christ. You see, John's whole life was about the goal of getting people ready to receive God's Son. His whole purpose in life was to be a voice of one in the wilderness who was crying out, prepare ye the way of the Lord. His whole life had that purpose in its mind. And he must have battled against popularity. He must have battled against uh, the, the, the self-promotion that came to him from others that were there saying, wow, John, this is a great ministry you've got going on. This is pretty cool. Look at the results. We baptized 700 people this month. And, and, and as he went through this, this time, he was continually demoting himself. What is it that he said in the, in the Gospel of John? He said, I must decrease. He said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And I love that attitude about John. You know, I had to talk about the Super Bowl today at some point in the message, don't you? As I was studying, I thought, you know what, John was a pretty impressive dude. He was there, he was a mighty man of valor, he was preaching God's word, he, was, he, he had the, 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 the folks coming out to see him. And I thought about the Super Bowl today, and, and much the same way, these guys are athletes to a degree and a level that we, we have to look at and just go, wow, these guys are amazing athletes that will be playing in the Super Bowl today, and I respect that. Respect the hard work that they've put into that. But you know what? As mighty and as impressive and as hard-hitting and athletic and muscular as these guys are that we're going to watch this afternoon on television, some of us are going to watch on television this afternoon, you know what? They're nothing in compared to the might of Jesus Christ. They can't hold a candle to the true power that Jesus Christ has. And I like that. As a man, as, I, as I'm hearing that, I, you know, I'm going, That's cool. Jesus Christ is a powerful dude. He's way more powerful than the strongest athletes, than the greatest prophets. He's much more uh, uh, real and spiritual and, 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 and just powerful in, in, in order to con- 
defeat sin and defeat death than anything that this world has to offer us. There's nothing that can compare to him. Notice the message that he preached, John the, the, the Baptist in verse 7. He says, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and to loose. So really quick, I just want to clue you into something uh, that is contextual to this passage. According to Jewish tradition, a Jewish rabbi could ask his followers to do almost anything. But there was one thing that he was not allowed to ask his students to do, and that was to untie his sandal straps. And you know why? Because in that day, the roads were made of dirt, and the people all wore sandals. And you can imagine that at the end of a day of walking throughout that town, your foot would just be full of sweat and dirt. And when those two mix, you get an interesting substance, don't you? It's called grime. Uh, otherwise known as cheese or, or other things as well. <laughs> and I know about this stuff because in Costa Rica, I lived in a town that did not have asphalt on the roads. It was all dirt roads. And it's a tropical climate, so you don't necessarily put shoes on every day. In fact, we're battling that with our children right now in our house. Like, our kids don't wear shoes. I mean, it's the dead of winter. They'll run outside without shoes on. They're so used to just going without shoes. Some of you are going, hey, that happens to me, my kids too. You know, maybe it's universal. I don't know. But our kids do not like to wear shoes because they never have. And so we, we, we walked around in Costa Rica all the time with all that dirt and all that grime on our, 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 our shoes. And you just see it start to build up over time. And at the end of the day, it's just gross. And so, you know, imagine me coming home and saying to one of the people, you know, they're, uh, you know, I'm doing discipleship with a guy and I'm like, hey, you know, can you just take that sandal off for me? I'd really appreciate it. You know, that was the one thing in Jewish tradition you are not allowed to do, okay, is to ask your student to take off your sandal. But notice what John says. Notice his attitude. He says, you know what, I'm not even worthy to take off that sandal. This was a job that only slaves were considered uh, to, to be able to do. And John says, you know what, I'm not even worthy to do the job of a slave in this, account, in this account. I'm not even worthy to undo the straps of the sandals of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how awesome Jesus Christ is. That's how awesome he is in the mind of John the Baptist. And that's who John is trying to point us to this morning. He's saying, look, listen. Don't miss this. Jesus Christ came. It's a new beginning. There's something different about him, and you need to know it. You need to grasp it. Look at verse 8 with me. We, we find the new ministry of Jesus Christ here. It says, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an intricate part of the good news about Jesus Christ. Even though he isn't here physically with us, he has baptized us with the Holy Spirit. Even though he's not physically sitting next to you today, and you can't put your arm around him, you can't say, Jesus, I love you, and expect to get a squeeze back from him. You can't do that today. But you know what? His Holy Spirit is here, and he's with us. And the ministry of Jesus Christ is that he gives us the Holy Spirit, the good gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this morning, I, you know, have been just, uh, 
I've been excited to share the message this morning with you for a couple of different reasons. One, uh, I, I don't know if you realize this, but uh, this is the, exactly one year ago today, the Sunday that I came, first came to church here. And uh, in one year, I feel like so much has happened. And yet, I feel that it's just the beginning of what the Lord wants to do. Uh, I just want to say on a personal note, I'm very, very grateful and thankful to so many of you. I feel, I feel like in one year I've gotten to know uh, several of you very well. And I feel like in the coming year, I'm going to get to know even more of you even better. And I'm thankful for that. But this one year has been a year of complete stretching for me and for my family. It's one of those things that you don't realize, but as you go through a transition like what we went through, you, you become fluid in a sense in your, in your heart, in your life. You're not really sure what's going on. It's a very uh, unstable time, so to speak. But I just want to say this morning that I feel like my wife and I have found our home and that we have come to this place and just realized, you know what, we are excited about what God wants to do here in Paris, Texas. And, and what he wants to do through this church in this community. And I do truly believe that we are beginning today. A new beginning. Yes, it's been a year. But you know what? I still feel like I'm brand new. <laughs> I'm still out in, 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 in town in Paris. And I'll have someone go, hey pastor, good to see you today. And I'll go, what? <laughs> you know, I didn't even know you came to church here. And, and, and things like that. So I feel like this is still so new. It's still so fresh. But this is, this is where we need the, 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 the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is what I wanted to talk about about this point. Is that we need, as a church, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not a weird thing. It's not some, you know, I'm not going Pentecostal on you here this morning talking about this. I'm not expecting anybody to fall down and laugh like a hyena either, okay? Although we got one down there. Oh, a couple of them that are doing that right now. I love babies in service, just so you know, by the way. Babies are awesome. But you know what? We need as a church to be depending on the Lord as we move forward. You know, every single one of us is part of this family that God has made. But every single one of us is subject to to uh, the enemies that we all face. And we face enemy of our flesh, number one. That's my number one enemy. We face the enemy of the world around us that is uh, seeking to conform us to their way. And they're seeking to, to make us walk in a direction along with them. But then we have that enemy of Satan, the enemy that, God, that, that, that actually is going to come against Jesus Christ here in chapter one later on and tempt him. And all of us face these three enemies, and something that the Lord is impressing on my heart is that we as a church, we need to be aware of this. We need to realize that there is an attack against the family of God, and that God would, or that Satan would love nothing more than to split, to divide, to destroy, to, to cause you and I to, to uh, begin to be suspicious of each other, or to, you know, not have, uh, you know, unconditional love in our hearts towards one another. And that's very, very difficult to do. I understand that it's not natural. None of us can do it on our own. But this morning, as we're talking about a new beginning, 
I believe that this is so tied into what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to start a new beginning. You know what? Sometimes that new beginning needs to happen in our life every morning. A new beginning where we come to Jesus and we realize, you know what, Jesus? I need you fresh today. And I need that ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life today. And so as I close this message this morning, as we get ready to take communion, the Lord's Supper this morning, I pray that you would leave with this in your hearts this morning, that Jesus Christ is the second Adam who came to, this, to, to begin again, to have a new beginning in your life, in my life. And that new beginning is going to come through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That as we wait on Him, as we are filled with Him, as we recognize that Jesus Christ gives us the Spirit, He baptizes us with the Spirit, that this is how we are to be able to do church. This is how we are to be able to do the family of God together. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But this is not something that we can do in our own strength. We have to rely on the Spirit. And that's why God has given us the Holy Spirit His spirit lives in our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you're here and you have never given your life to God, you've never said, God, I recognize and realize I need you, this is the time to do that. This is the time to say, you know what, I'm going to open up my heart, I'm going to open up my life to the spirit. I need a new beginning We might not be living in the time of the Emperor Nero, but I'll tell you what, we are living in a very exciting time in the history of the world. We are living in a time which I believe is not far from the wilderness experience. Guys, I believe that we are uh, on the brink, on the brink of many things. Uh, You look at the news and you can, I mean, if if you know prophecy, and are concerned about the news. You can relate those things together. You can find how Bible prophecy lines up with what's going on in current events, and you know, you know that we're getting close. Just as the community of the, Jewish, of the Jews was waiting for Jesus in their day, we also need to be waiting for Jesus in our day. He's coming soon. He's coming back, and we need to know that. I think before he comes, we're going to see some crazy things happen, though. I think that there are several things on the horizon that are very close. Um, just, and, and I'm just speaking of the economy. I just don't see how our economy is going to continue uh, to, to be propped up for very much longer. But I say all these things not to get you, you know, thinking doom and gloom, but, but rather to remind you that Jesus Christ is real. Jesus Christ came to give salvation to you and to me. We're to be trusting in him and in no other thing. And, and he's given us the good gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus, from a relationship with him. So this morning as we close out the service, if you're here and you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, we're going to have some prayer teams at the front. We're going to sing this first song. This is going to be a time of invitation. I want to invite you to come and to give your life to Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to come and say, hey, I need to give my life to the Lord this morning. Or I need to be prayed for, to have that that, that gift of the Holy Spirit poured out in my life. I need to be immersed in the presence of the Lord today. So would you uh, stand to your feet this morning as we sing this song and would the prayer teams come on up? And I'm going to ask that if you are that person that knows that you just need to come up and get some prayer this morning, 
to be filled with the Spirit or to give your life to Jesus Christ, that you would come on down, that you would realize that, hey, Jesus Christ came to, to make a new beginning in your life. And in your life, he wants to start doing that today by coming down and just saying, hey, I admit it, I need it, I know this, and, and, and this is why I'm here. So let's go ahead and sing this song as we do that, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper after that.